Okay, welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Charlie, how long has it been since we've done a podcast? Has it been a month? I think it's been a month, yeah. Did you do any podcast with any guests while I was gone? It didn't come up on my feed, or did you just take no, the time I, I off No, I planned to. I planned to, and then I got extremely busy. Ah, um, I see. Well, here we are uh, again. So glad to be back after a little sort of semi-leave, although, you know, Charlie, I remember, um, I'm, I'm older than you, of course, so I have a better memory of this, but in the 19, you know, kind of late 70s, early 80s, I guess, in some ways, was really the heyday of the syndicated columnists. I mean, syndicated columnists were a big thing for, for many years before that, but it was kind of the last of the um, era of the kind of monopoly of print and the big newspapers and the three or four Sunday morning shows and all that. And if you were a really, really busy syndicated columnist back then, you wrote two columns a week. And uh, during my vacation, I think I averaged three and a half. Yeah, isn't there some famous quote? Was it William F. Buckley telling George Will that he wouldn't have a problem writing two columns a week because... There would be two things that he was that would irritate him. Yeah, and and this was <laughs> sort of two columns a week. Yeah, yeah. Although he he was writing three at one point, wasn't he? Or was it Bill that wrote three at one point? I'm trying to remember. I don't one of the know, conservative columnists. We, we, we often write five. Well, I often write more than that. I, I think I average uh, well over five pieces a week. But um, I mean, once you start counting. Uh, we're talking too much about ourselves, but once you start counting print magazine stuff and unsigned editorials right. and, and that kind of stuff, yeah. So um, I don't know. I'll keep track of that one of these days. I'm sure someone does that for us, right? That's probably how we get evaluated somewhere in the uh, depths of the mysterious machine that is National Review. Uh, we've talked a lot about um, the Dobbs decision and uh, row before it but there are a couple of aspects of it that you and i have both written about that i thought maybe we would talk about some today um i say um too much i'm getting self-conscious about these things so you know what Kevin, so it's not a so Kevin, it's not a better one either before we get yeah. to that this yeah. is our first post row podcast oh is it really did you ever think that would happen yes you did yeah, I thought that um, it was such a transparently bad decision that eventually it would be vacated. Now, I didn't, I wasn't entirely confident that it would be as entirely uh, gutted and set aside as it was. And in a sense, Roe had already been, you know, kind of superseded um, by uh, Casey and um, some subsequent uh, stuff. So yeah, hooray for that. Um, did you uh, did you do anything to celebrate? Spend some time with your children, maybe? <laughs> well, actually, no, because I, I was driving down, of course. This always happens to me. I was driving down from Jacksonville to Fort Myers, which takes ages. Yeah. And I had assumed that if Dobbs was imminent, it would be on the last day of the term. So Monday, Tuesday, and suddenly I got a text message. My car has Apple CarPlay in it, so it comes up on the mm -hmm. screen that I have a message, and if you touch it, it reads it to you. And it said, Dobbs, 
And because it was in all capitals, uh, Siri shouted it, Dobbs! And uh, <laughs> then I got 6-3, and then I got oh, and then the holding, which was held. The Constitution does not protect the right to abortion, etc. And I thought, well, this is just great. I've just set off on a six-hour journey. <laughs> and this monumental development has, has hit. Happened. Well, so, I've seen you no. post column on your phone before. You could have someone else drive for a couple hours, right? Uh, yeah, drive. and I often do, but I was driving on my own, unfortunately. Um, on right. the upside, can on the you, way back. Can you dictate? Uh, yeah, you know. Dictating to Siri is hard to do for you. Yeah, I, I sometimes have my do wife uh, type out what I'm, well, I, actually, my, my book was largely written that way. Uh, but, you know, we'd have a glass of wine and I would sort of pace around the room and dictate slowly and correct myself. Well, Siri doesn't do that. I mean, she doesn't drink wine for a start. Yeah. And your and your wife would sit around and just type that stuff up as you walked around the room drinking wine and talking? No, she was drinking wine, too. Well, I mean, yeah, obviously. But, man, that's uh, I'm, that's hmm. that, that, that's that, that's high level service right there. Well, it's just pre kids and uh, pre kids, yeah. Okay, because well, the the reason for it it sounds it sounds as if you know as you say it's high level service, but actually the reason for it is you know what this is like. You're a writer. You've written books. You've written more books than me. It's really lonely writing a book. Yes, uh, and, and lonely for the person you're married to as well. Exactly, and so although it was still fairly lonely because once I dictated out a chapter, then I would go back and edit it heavily and that you can only do on your own. Um, the the original dictation part allowed us to hang out and oh, drink. good. Good stuff. <laughs> All right, if we can actually get to the subject here. Yes. <laughs> the thing that you and I have both sort of touched on was that um, our friends on the left have in many ways forgotten how to persuade because it's been so long since they've really had to. You know, they um, had a really strong position in the courts for a long time from the, you know, from the 1950s until pretty recently. And they thought that they could count on the Supreme Court to give them major victories and the major social issues that they cared about. And for the most part, for a long time, for decades, they were right about that. Um, some of those decisions are things that we're glad they did in retrospect. Some of them aren't. Um, I have my questions about um, some aspects of the Brown ruling, but um, we're all certainly glad to see the desegregation in the schools. Uh, but I don't have a whole lot of questions about Roe and some of the other cases. And also, I mean, you you and I would disagree about some of these things. But um, were you are happy with the with the outcome, say, of um, Bergfell, um, but you think it's a bad case? So the fact that this has now been taken away um, from our friends on the left has left them really confused, I think. And some of this, you know, rage and blubbering and stuttering and inability to make an argument that you've seen following uh, Dobbs, I, I think it really just shows a political movement that is out of practice, that they really came to believe that, well, we've got the New York Times on our side, we've got that slice of elite opinion on our side, we've got the universities, and uh, we've got the courts, what else do we really need? And I think you saw some of that in um, the Obama years, where he 
didn't seem to care at all about the fact that his party was losing elections just all over the country um, because he himself was a voice that was respected and deferred to and listened to, or at least he perceived himself that way. And I think there was a, a lot of truth to that, that he had the right kind of standing with the right sort of slice of polite opinion and the lead opinion to get what he wanted. And that doesn't really work in politics. And I think that our friends on the left are really, for the first time in, in probably my lifetime, now really having to face that. And I think this is demonstrated in two important ways. First, Kevin, what was the best legal argument you read against Dobbs? Yeah, there are none. None. Um, no one, almost no one, I think, really tried to set forth a um, any kind of robust, real constitutional argument for it. We heard a lot about starry ceases. Right. And, which and I that's think most people don't know what that means. No, and that's what's so interesting because if you go back to Casey, the argument that rose a 50 year precedent relies upon Casey. But Casey was not a an endorsement of Roe. Casey was a, a precedent that relied upon precedent. I mean, if you read the case, they say, well, uh, as in Animal House, Roe has a long tradition of existing. <laughs> that's it. I don't think they actually quote Animal House, do they? No, of course they don't. But, but that's the argument. They didn't say in Casey, you know, Roe was correct. I mean, Harry Blackman did, because he wrote Roe, but the rest didn't. He, yeah. uh, they didn't say, well, we've re-examined its logic and found that it works nicely. They didn't say subsequent scholarship has reinforced the notion. Uh, they said, well, it is. So you've got 50 years, but really it's 19. Yeah. And... You know, I think to, to was Casey to, only nineteen years ago. No, it was nineteen after Roe. Oh, nineteen after Roe. Yes, I'm saying that doesn't sound right. So, the 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 obvious problem there is that when you're saying while well, it's precedent, you're also relying on a case that said well it's precedent. So it's not fifty years; it's nineteen years. Yeah. Uh, uh, but the so the first thing as I say is that you, there just haven't been any legal arguments uh, in favor of of keeping Roe. Uh, and the legal arguments for it when it was when it was decided were poor, but the second part of this is that the uh, mainstream and loudest voices discussing the overturning of Roe have almost uniformly lied about it. Yeah. In that they have pretended that what Dobbs did was what Roe did, and. By that, I mean they have pretended that the court departed from the text of the Constitution or that the court usurped power or that the court arrogated itself into a position in which it could set policy for the whole country. But that's not true. Even the New York Times said this. There was a piece that I took to task 10 days or so ago that said with a straight face that Republicans had got the Supreme Court to ban abortion because Republicans didn't want to do that themselves because it would cost them politically. Of course, that's not what happened. The Supreme Court really? did not was in, ban that was abortion. Really, in the Times? Absolutely. Wow, who wrote that? I will find out for you if you bear with me. Sure. 
we need a Jeopardy clock for when we're looking stuff up or thinking about things or while I'm engaging in one of my very long pauses while I try to think about what it is I actually want to say. But of course, the Supreme Court did no such thing. The Supreme Court reversed a decision that had contrived to set a national standard based upon no constitutional authority, and it returned the question to the states. And returning the question to the states is not intrinsically necessary in every realm. It's not necessary, for example, where the First Amendment or Sixth Amendment or Second Amendment is involved, but where there is no constitutional basis, it is. And I I think it is really telling that that's been the response uh, because it underscores uh, that the left has forgotten how to persuade. Yeah, and then, um, you know, then Dobbs being followed by the um, EPA case, the air regulation case, and the uh, New York gun case seems to have even deepened this sense um, among current left-wing critics of the court that it's only sort of engaged in in, in policymaking. You know, that to depart for a second here, the gun case really sort of got my attention um, because they approached it from an angle that I hadn't really thought about that much, which was the issue of um, you know, the subjective nature of the criteria for getting a license to carry in New York. So they said you can have um, standards, obviously. Um, you can have rules and restrictions, but they have to be objective criteria. And if people meet those criteria, then you give them a license. Whereas the version in New York had always been um, – well, if you can convince us that you've got a good reason, then we'll uh, we'll give you a license. Show us that you need one. And um, it was interesting for me to see them um, challenge it on those grounds because I always think of the Second Amendment in terms of the First Amendment. You know, what would be the analogous uh, thing for the First Amendment? So we don't tell people, well, you've got freedom of speech, but you have to convince us that you've got some real reason to publish a book or start a newspaper or start a website or have a parade. Um, and if we don't think you do, then, uh, you can't do it. Whereas we do have rules about things like how to get a parade permit, how to get a permit to hold a big public event or rally, you know, protest, things like that. But we don't do it on a subjective basis usually. And, and if we are doing it anywhere on a subjective basis, I hope that that gets challenged in the same way that the uh, New York city gun thing did. Well, we don't allow viewpoint discrimination for a start. Right. Or, Speaking or of the New York City uh, concealed carry permit or, or handgun carry permit, um, one of the criticisms of it that has always been made and um, is true is that it's much easier to get a carry permit if you are a celebrity. Um, in fact, it's very hard to get one if you're not. And, um, of course, our our beloved founder, William F. Buckley, had a uh, permit. He was one of the rare handgun permit holders in New York City. And this is from the time when he was running for mayor. And someone asked him about it apparently in the 90s. And he said that he still had the piece of paper in his wallet, but no one could remember where they'd left the gun. So just to return quickly to your question, the piece yes. was from June 27th. It was by Carl Hulse. And hmm. the line in question says this. Senate Republicans did not have to take the politically risky step of banning abortions. The court took care of the issue for them. Huh. Completely I guess, wrong. I guess there's some way to read that 
as being true. How? In Well, in that they didn't have to do anything at the national level legislatively because the issue has been returned to the states. So I guess maybe there's a, a sneaky sort of way you could say that. But no, it sounds like what they're writing, of course, is just preposterous that the Dobbs decision bans abortion, which it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Huh. Lots of foolishness. What is the state of um, the law in Florida right now? You have the, is it the 15 week things that are already gone into effect. It's a little bit complicated, so I will answer at length. As it is everywhere, I imagine. But The state legislature passed a 15 week ban. That seems to be, for what it's worth, about where the median voter is in Florida on this question. Mm-hmm. The ban was pegged to the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs or any subsequent case. So when that came down, the law in Florida went into effect. That law was then challenged because Florida has its own state-level road decision from 1989. A judge upheld the challenge and enjoined the law. That decision was then appealed. And having been accepted by the court, the law was then put back into force. That's a peculiarity of the appeals process in Florida, which the state legislature controls. When an uh, injunction is appealed, the injunction is removed pending the outcome. I see. The Florida state level row is, I think, highly questionable. How so? In 1978, the state legislature proposed an amendment to the Constitution, which was ratified by the people in 1980. The provision that the state legislature wrote had to do with privacy. Given the way it is written, and much of the historical and contemporary coverage, it seems fairly clear to me that this dealt with privacy in the way that the Fourth Amendment deals with privacy of papers, effects, and so forth. It seems to have come out of a cultural uh, zeitgeist, uh, post-Watergate, post the invention of the fax machine and the internet. Um, And it's uh, bolstered, that interpretation is bolstered by the fact that it explicitly excludes from its purview the public records rules in Florida that are collectively known as the Sunshine Law. In other words, it's designed to protect the privacy of uh, Floridians in their effects, communication, and so forth, but that this cannot be construed to apply to the government when the government wants to hide something. Anyhow, in 1989, the state Supreme Court took up the case and said, no, this is a very broad privacy law, and it covers all sorts of areas that uh, people might want to be private in, and as such, it prohibits abortion. The 
decision explicitly points to Roe v. Wade, says that it's this example. DeSantis and the Attorney General of Florida, Ashley Moody, have said that they will appeal it all the way up to the Supreme Court, that they believe that that decision was incorrect and should be reversed. Whether it will be, I don't know. It seems possible, given that the Florida Supreme Court has been radically altered in the last five years. Uh, It used to be six to one uh, non-textualist to textualist, and now it's six to one textualist to non-textualist. So with a different approach, it's possible this will fall. Well done, Florida Supreme Court reformers. Hmm. One of the things I mentioned in my piece that you just made me think of is that um, conservatives need to be careful not to fall into the same trap. Um, Now that we've got a Supreme Court that we think will often rule in our favor on things, although I don't think conservatives have ever had a kind of Supreme Court that they think will just um, give them stuff ex nihilo. in terms of policy, the way liberals have with the Supreme Court for the last several decades. But we we can be pretty confident in having a Supreme Court that mostly is going to hew to what the Constitution and the law actually says. That being said, um, there's a lot of, of work to be done in institutions outside of that. You know, we've got, um, we need a sort of federalist society for the universities. We need a federalist society for the media. We need a federalist society for all sorts of uh, all sorts of things in life where we have to continue to um, bring the argument outside of <clears throat> one or two very powerful institutions that can you know change over time, and that's the, um, the the great lesson I think for the left in this is that you, you it's easy to get uh, complacent about where your power sits and how you're able to use it. You know, when there's a certain defeatist strain in conservatism where we talk about these lost institutions as they'll always be that way, you know, forever and ever. So we'll never have a fair shot in the media. We'll never have a fair shot in the academic world. California and New York are politically lost forever. And I don't really buy that. You know, things do change. The Florida Supreme Court changes. The U.S. Supreme Court changes. California was a Republican state in my lifetime. Um, you know, this isn't something that goes back to time immemorial. It's, um, I guess there's a bias, uh, it's present bias, right? You know, it's looking at things the way they are and assuming that they've always been this way and always will be that way. And I think that is a very, very dangerous thing for a political movement to, uh, to indulge in too much. I think that's exactly right. I think it probably does help that the originalist approach has at its heart a theory of democratic legitimacy, whereas living mm-hmm. constitutionalism does not. Yeah, I wrote about that some today. Yeah. Um, this fellow, uh, Larry Kramer, who was the dean of law at Stanford doing Ezra Klein's uh, podcast. And he seems like a, a smart and well-intentioned guy, obviously. I mean, he's um, obviously a, a scholar of this subject. But the whole conversation ended up just being, to me, almost incomprehensible because they completely ignore the kind of fundamental questions like, why do we write laws down? And if they're not written down in order to fix their meanings, then why do we do it at all? And how can we say that we have law if the laws don't have fixed meanings, if they're just whatever the um, you know court or some other institution decides they are at any particular point? And Kramer's uh, argument is, is something he calls popular constitutionalism. So rather than having the Supreme Court as the final um, interpreter 
of the Constitution, the sort of people as a whole are. And this is how his argument goes. But it's never been clear to me how that would work. Um, or how it would work in any way that's different from how things work in the ordinary democratic process. Yeah, why so haven't? we can look. So we can look at you know. Well, we think the, the, the Supreme Court got Roe wrong, and uh, so what do we do? Well, we can amend the Constitution. We can change the nature of the court. We can address things in terms of um, elections and statutes at the state level and other sorts of things. Um, that's really what that kind of means. There's no sort of we don't want the Supreme Court to be an interpreter of popular opinion, which is what this argument really implies. The sort of the people as a whole are the interpreters of the uh, of the Constitution. That the people don't engage in interpretive acts in that way. They engage in voting. That's what the people do. That's their their main way of participating in um, in the political process. So. I think we've got a pretty good argument that, look, we write these laws down for a reason. It's like the rules of the game, you know, and the game doesn't work if the rules aren't known and knowable and if they're subject to change every time you don't like the way that they um, they come out. So there's, you know, there's a process there. It's a process that is difficult to, you know, amend the Constitution. It's difficult to change the character of the Supreme Court. But there is a legitimate process there, whereas if the law is whatever five guys um, – when the Supreme Court decided it is in a given day, I think you're right. That really does bring up serious questions of legitimacy. You know, I've written about this in the, in the context of Roe. I think Roe is an illegitimate decision. Now, how many illegitimate things does the government get to do before you start to think of the regime itself as being illegitimate? Regime is a funny word, by the way. People think regime means something nasty. Uh, it's got some kind of negative connotation if you refer to something as a regime uh, people think you mean that it's totalitarian, but I'm yeah, not trying to imply her. Um, unless it's like a diet and fitness thing. Um, although I think the word regimen is really taken over there. Although regime used to be pretty common in that usage. Anyway, so I don't think that the U.S. government is illegitimate, anything like that. But if you have enough of these things that pile up, then it does ultimately undermine the legitimacy of your regime. Whereas having a system that's in which the Supreme Court gets its legitimacy not from its willingness to implement political values, but from its dedication to being a servant of the law rather than using a law as a tool for its own you know, private ends. I think that is something that with a long-term kind of value that we can agree upon, and it's a case that we can win. Um, even among people who are not uh, – you know, where we are politically, that, that don't want the outcomes we want, that want abortion to be legal, that would prefer that abortion rights actually were in the law. And uh, that's kind of one of the one of the victories of the you know conservative movement as an intellectual phenomenon that's been it's difficult to really pin down. But there has been, I think, a pretty noticeable advance in textualist thinking among people who are not politically on the right. Um, of people who have started to understand that in order to have a system that really functions and that feels legitimate to everybody, and it is legitimate, that we can't just use the courts as nakedly political organs the way that happened in Roe, that we have to have some real basis in the documents and the laws themselves, which can be changed over time, but can't be changed just by judicial fiat. No, there's really only two options, I think. If you believe that the Constitution is binding and has a fixed meaning, and that the rest of the system has to hew to that fixed meaning, then you can have a system of judicial review, as we do. 
if you believe that the voting majority should determine the meaning of the constitution, then you would get rid of judicial review, you would reverse Marbury versus Madison, and you would essentially remove the Supreme Court from the system. And you would say the constitution's meaning is what the branches of government that we elect say that it is. And that's entirely defensible. That's how most countries work. There are some people who think that's how the United States should work. But you can't have a yeah. system of judicial review and popular interpretation of the meaning of the law. That's absurd. Yeah. And, and we can see it's absurd not just from uh, our discussions of what law is and not just from our interrogation of the founding, but from recent constitutional amendments. For example... 1951, the 22nd Amendment is ratified. What does that say? It says, no person shall be elected to the office of the president more than twice. Well, that, that includes even if a majority of the people want them to. Yeah. So should that change along with opinion polls? If Barack Obama in 2016 had been wildly popular and the polling had showed that he would have been easily elected to a third term, or if Ronald Reagan had decided in 1988 to run again, should the meaning of that have shifted? If not, you see quite clearly that majority opinion is not really relevant when it comes to the enforcement of clear law. Right, and that's the whole point of having a Bill of Rights and that sort of thing is to put limits on what majorities can do. Side note here, I think Barack Obama would have been elected pretty handily if he'd run for a third yeah, time I in 2016, too. if he'd been able to. Um, but he couldn't. Yeah, I think Why not? That is, uh, that is sort of the problem with this um, you know, popular uh, will, this sort of pseudo-Rousseauian uh, kind of way of, of, of looking at the people as this sort of you know, mystical unitary body that can be read and interpreted somehow as though it were a text, which just isn't the case. But that approach can't really live in the same house as the Constitution itself does, because our Constitution is, in many ways, an anti-majoritarian document. That's why we have it there. Um, we have this system of rules and particular enumerated enshrined rights um, in order to set those things outside of the purview of majority rule and majority preferences. Speaking of which, I want to get your 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 thoughts on on an issue. I think one of the the reasons or one of the ways in which people get misled or misunderstand the nature of what the court is there to do and what it's supposed to do, I mean at least people who are trying to apply themselves a little bit to the the question seriously, is the issue of unenumerated rights. So they want to say that this is essentially an invitation for the courts to do acts of justice, to say that, well, we think there should be a right to this, and this we will find among the unenumerated rights uh, mentioned in the Constitution. How do you think of that? I don't think there's any provision in the Constitution for the judicial protection of unenumerated rights. And I think that this broadly speaking comes from a misunderstanding of how our government is set up. Yeah, and a misinterpretation of the Ninth Amendment. So if you'll bear with me for a moment, I'll explain what I mean. The federal government has enumerated powers. It is only supposed to do a few things. And as a result, 
the inclusion of a Bill of Rights within the federal constitution, long before the 14th Amendment, doesn't make a great deal of sense. Hamilton and Madison pointed this out. They said, well, hang on a minute. We've created this document and we've given the federal government only a few powers. Well, why on earth would you add provisions saying, and the federal government can't do this? We know it can't do that. That's the whole point. The minute you start adding in what the government can't do, you're implying it can do what it was never empowered to do in the first place. Well, the anti-federalists said, thank you very much for that explanation, but we don't trust you. We think over time the, the government will grow. And maybe they were right. And so they say, we will ratify this constitution as it is written, but we want a Bill of Rights to be added. So that happens. Uh, first eight include individual rights, and the ninth and the tenth are explanatory. The tenth says any powers that aren't explicitly enumerated are reserved to the states and the people. And the ninth says and this comes to your question about unenumerated rights, that the list one through eight in the Bill of Rights is not exhaustive. But that doesn't mean it's a freestanding font of rights that any judge can use to bestow his conception of liberty on a plaintiff. It is a way of squaring the enumerated powers doctrine and the existence of a Bill of Rights by saying, don't think the federal government is allowed to do whatever it wants except for these things. Now, we fast forward to the 14th Amendment, and we have a problem. And that problem is that while the Bill of Rights has bound the federal government to some extent, although mostly in theory, up until 1868, it hasn't applied to the states. Now, James Madison wanted the First Amendment to apply to the states, but he was voted down. And so the radical Republicans who prevailed after the Civil War say we need to do something about this. They pass the 14th Amendment and they include in it two clauses. One is the due process clause. And the other is the privileges and immunities clause. Now the privileges and immunities clause was the clause that was supposed to apply the first eight provisions within the Bill of Rights to the states so that those states could not deprive their citizens and they were referring to their black citizens because that's what happened immediately, of the core rights that had been protected in 1791. The due process clause is really supposed to reiterate the Fifth Amendment at the state level. Weirdly, over time, instead of the privileges and immunities clause being used to incorporate the Bill of Rights to the state, the due process clause is used. And as both Clarence Thomas and Antonin Scalia have pointed out, this inserts a, a paradox, a misnomer, a non sequitur into American law, where due process becomes prepended with another word, substantive due process. And the court starts guessing, what does the liberty line in the due process clause of the 14th Amendment means? And so instead of just incorporating the Bill of Rights and saying, well, that's it, it's these eight, and if we want any more, we'll add them in. All the states can put them in their state constitutions. The court starts winding itself up into this judicially imperial role and using the due process clause of the 14th Amendment to protect uh, what it conceives to be 
Important. Now, that's not always been a left-wing enterprise. Between the 1880s and the 1920s, the courts often struck down economic regulations on uh, due process grounds, and not just at the federal level, but at the state level too. But more recently, this became a left-wing enterprise. We saw it in Roe. We saw it in Lawrence v. Texas. We saw it in Obergefell. And so in 1997, of course, pre-Lawrence and pre uh, a burger fell, the Rehnquist court said, stop. You cannot use the due process clause of the 14th Amendment to incorporate to the states any right that is not deeply rooted in American tradition. Now, I think it should have just said, we're not using the due process clause in that way. That's what Clarence Thomas believes. That's what he wrote in his concurrence in Dobbs. Yeah. But it didn't. In a case called Glucksburg, it said, look, we, we can't find a right to assisted suicide in the 14th Amendment. And this has caused great consternation on the left because the left, often ignoring that this rule came from Glucksburg, has said, ah, but what about all the other things that might not be uh, deeply rooted in the nation's tradition and history? Well, yeah. <laughs> I personally think the Glucksburg standard is is wrong because I don't think that we should be using substantive due process at all. But obviously, if you're going to use the due process clause of the 14th Amendment to incorporate some vague conception of individual liberty, then you cannot have it being freestanding because otherwise you are handing to judges a capacity to decide whatever they think is important uh, is mandatory. So to, you know, a long way of, of answering your question is... I don't think that the courts exist to protect what they consider to be important unenumerated rights. But if they are going to do that, which they shouldn't, then you have to have some sort of means by which to uh, to cabin it. Um, and I suspect going forward, what we're going to see uh, is essentially more lying. You know, where we have... <laughs> Roe gone because it was nonsense, but there being a political understanding that to extend the same logic that was used in Roe to, say, Obergefell and Lawrence would be politically unpopular, and therefore we're just not going to do that because we're not. Um, yeah. My hope is, though, that at least with this court, that the days of inventing new rights using substantive due process uh, are gone. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, it's not going to happen, but there could even be some salubrious effects of, of those politically unpopular things happening. You know, if the Supreme Court reversed itself on creating a national mandate for gay marriage, uh, within a few months, pretty much the whole country would legalize it through statute, I think. Um, you might have a couple of states that are holdouts, but I don't think that there would be, um, I don't think would actually end up being all that, all that big of an issue. People have kind of gotten used to it. And uh, of course, that's part of the argument people make for this kind of judicial activism is that the law is a teacher, right? And that now that people, this is how people got used to it, the fact that the courts made them um, evolve and progress on it, which I think is a bad argument for all sorts of reasons. You're reminding me of Robert Bork's uh, book, uh, The Tempting of America, in his writing on substantive due process. And <laughs> I can't remember his exact words. It was pretty pithy, but it was, you know, the thing about due process is it's process, not substance. Yeah, it's, and it's I think a that is non sequitur. 
yeah. But it's a non sequitur that's been there for a uh, long time and has to be dealt with in a kind of it's going to take a long time and um, and it probably will require making some decisions that are very, very uh, politically unpopular. You know, I think you and I both, um, I'm not going to speak for you on this. I think Lawrence was a bad decision. I think sodomy laws are silly and stupid and uh, I would vote against them if I were in a legislature. And I think that they are, you know, unjust in all sorts of ways, but it's very difficult to believe that there was, you know, sort of secretly lurking in the Constitution all these years, a uh, um, right to homosexual relations just wasn't there. Maybe it should be, um, but it's not. And I think that, you know, vacating some of those decisions would be um, wildly unpopular, but it's probably going to be necessary to do to establish, you know, the the mode of a more legitimate and uh, constitutionally sound kind of jurisprudence in the long run yeah and at the very least as i say i i think what we should hope for is for the court to stop inventing new rights based on substantive due process on the grounds that perhaps the old ones can sit there unchallenged I, i i don't think it's likely that the court is going to be asked to rule on a state contraception ban again I don't yeah. think it's likely that the court is going to be asked to rule on an anti-sodomy law. I, I don't think it's likely that the court would be asked to rule on uh, gay marriage, although that one seems more possible to me, both because there probably are a couple of states that could plausibly, although probably wouldn't ban it, but um, more likely there would be a case where, say, a, a clerk came to the court and said, I don't want to perform this or register this marriage. Yeah. And at that point you could see the question being revisited. Um my problem here is the cases that I'll oh, go ahead please. I was going to say my, my problem here is that I think the law matters and although I yeah. like the result of Obergefell because I've been in favor of gay marriage for a long time I just don't think it's acceptable in any circumstance to lie about the law. And, yeah. and you know when I hear people say well it's just too important I hear them say, therefore, we can hang you without a trial. Uh, I just don't see any distinction. Once you get into that habit, you've given up. One of the other cases that drove people a little bit nuts um, was the school prayer case. And uh, because that issue always drives people nuts because the subject of religion brings out the crazy in people. But there was a headline in Slate, and I'm probably going to do it disservice, but it was, you know, what the Supreme Court is saying about who deserves freedom. And I thought that's that's really kind of interesting to me because this is the left's uh, conception of freedom. There's a guy who wants to say a prayer by himself, and we can't let that happen. Our freedom is defined by what other people are not allowed to do. <laughs> but they're also telling a, a, on themselves. Whenever they cast yes. Supreme Court decisions like that, they are telling on themselves. I remember in Neil Gorsuch's confirmation hearing, one of the repeated lines of questioning was, why did you rule for this plaintiff? And then they would run back to the newspapers and say, Neil Gorsuch clearly likes this sort of person. Right. Why? That's not how the law works. Yeah, that is um, that is a distasteful part of our politics. It's been around for a while. I've been writing about this probably for 30 years now. But um, a lot of the people who run for office are lawyers. 
And lawyers often have clients who are not nice people, particularly if they are criminal defense lawyers or, um, you know, kind of corporate litigation lawyers. And the law exists in order to, in part, one of the reasons it exists is to look after the interests of people we think aren't nice. That's why it's there. If we were only dealing with people toward whom we had charitable, kind, and generous impulses, we wouldn't need any law at all. We could just manage the world the way we manage our families. But that is not how societies actually work. And so you'll find people who do admirable things, like take on wildly unpopular free speech cases. And then you'll 10 years later, someone's saying, well, he's a Nazi, you know, because he's in the ACLU and they defended uh, the Nazis' right to uh, have a march in Skokie, Illinois or whatever. And look at the way that they responded to some of the high profile cases. The, the line was, I wonder if the Kennedy v. Bremerton case would have come out the same way if it were a Jew or a Muslim praying. Yeah. As if this wasn't a question about religion, but one religion. As if there weren't amicus briefs filed by Jewish and Muslim groups. As if Jews and Muslims don't pray in public in America or teach in schools. As if the majority opinion didn't point out that under the dissent's logic, someone wearing a yarmulke in a school could be deemed in violation of the Establishment Clause. The same thing with the Bruin decision, which, by the way, was written by a black man who grew up under segregation. Ah, well, they'll change their mind when African-Americans start carrying guns. Will they? Uh, Do you think it was alien to Clarence Thomas, this idea? (laughs) Do you think that he missed the fact that a whole host of black gun groups filed amicus briefs in the case? uh, That uh, progressive uh, defense lawyers filed amicus briefs in the case? Come on. I hear Clarence Thomas is just itching to uh, prohibit interracial marriage. <laughs> you know, in, in 2010, the Supreme Court decided a case called McDonald v. Chicago, which incorporated the Heller decision to the states. The plaintiff in that case's name uh, was Otis McDonald, uh, hence the McDonald. He was a black resident of Chicago. You know, the idea that the, these, these possibilities are alien, unknown, to the court, or that the court would care, or frankly that conservatives care, is so odd. Uh, yeah, it's we just hear them dirty, dirty, you're a racist. It's racist. I mean, um, on your point yeah. about interracial marriage, we, we've now reached the point at which a mainstream conspiracy theory is that the Supreme Court of the United States is on a uh, collision course with Loving v. Virginia, the case that... Uh, rendered bans on interracial marriage illegal, and that this has been masterminded by Mitch McConnell, who is married to Elaine Chow, and Clarence Thomas, (laughs) who is married to a white lady. It is so silly. But that's where we are. Well, that goes back to our original sort of opening point, that because they've not had to make a lot of arguments, they've kind of got out of practice of doing it. And so now it's just, well, you're a racist, you're a homophobe, you hate women. You want to control women's lives, blah, 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 blah. This sort of really shallow kind of um, discrediting stuff rather than rather than argument per se. I think that's right. And uh, I think it will be interesting to see, as you suggested earlier, whether Republicans become arrogant and complacent and start to fulfill the same role 
and allow the skills to atrophy. Uh, I mean, I, I suspect that the sheer incompetence and also bad luck of Joe Biden has led many Republican skills to atrophy just in the last year. Uh, yeah. Because at the moment, they can pretty much sit back <laughs> and say, la, 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 and be guaranteed to take the House. But that won't last yeah. forever. And you have to add to that the fact that the Republicans are stupid, lazy, and corrupt. Yep. Seem to be <laughs> stupid, lazy, and corrupt, and in the majority. Yeah. Um, that is not too surprising that those things go together. All right. That having been said, you know, Charlie, it is not going to be below 80 degrees at any time of day for the next uh, 16 days or so where I am. And the highs will be all 104, 105 and whatnot. So either I will not step outside or I'll be crankier next time we talk. Or both. (laughs) Or both. Talk to you later, Charles. Bye.